0: hello my friends and welcome back to idle chatter i'm your host ray bohacks the hot rod farmer from hackettstown new jersey and hopefully as always it is my sincerest desire that the sound of my voice has things going well for you on your farm ranch your operation whatever type of operation you have or and uh, just in your life in general if you don't farm a ranch but that you happen to uh to do something else for a living. Everyone can't farm a ranch, so we're grateful for those that do, and we thank God for those who do not, because we need the other things in life also. So uh, as of right now, I have, uh, th- well, as of me recording this, I have three plantings of sweet corn in. I think I have my spray, <laughs> my sprayer fixed, and uh, who knows, it's working statically not moving and I changed the manifold I think I told you that last time and it lost pressure and I uh, changed that I got the new manifold but they didn't send me the fittings for it it's unbelievable so I ran around all over trying to get fittings and I had to end up getting plumbing store fittings and the barbs on the plumbing store fittings even though there's for a half inch hose are higher or, or, or more exaggerated than the ones on the sprayer fittings so the old hose would not go on and of course it wasn't pliable enough and i didn't want to get involved with re the sprayer at that particular point i wanted to get you know do what i had to do and even though i wanted to eventually replumb it the hoses aren't cracked but they are hard there from 2009 to so they're 13 years old everything i have it stays shedded but for about a month during planting it sits outside so um, anyway but it gets it gets well it's not a shed it's a sea container and it gets hot in there so but what have you but there's no real uv damage other than when it's sitting outside so what happened was that i said all right well let me call them up and order the right hose the right material i don't want to use heater hose so i called up crop care and they had they send me the right material and i said all right i'm going to put i got the manifold on i got the fittings on and the plumbing store fittings and i'll i'll you know put the new hose on i'll just i wasn't going to re-hose the boom at that particular point i just needed to re-hose whatever came to the boom from the three uh the three i'll call it zones on the uh or sections on the sprayer and uh the new hose, which is very nice, it was, a, it was the same, it was a uh, Parker hose, but it was a different part number than they used nine years ago, and uh, that wouldn't go under fittings either, it wasn't pliable enough, so I said, this is crazy, and that's when I realized I cut the old hose off, the old nip with the old fittings from the manifold, and lo and behold, the barbs are much sm- uh, smaller, so the old hose fit right on to the old fittings with no problem. I cut it I use my uh my whatever you call it the heater hose tool cut a nice clean cut on it and put it on there. So I put it so I put a six hundred dollar spray manifold with thirteen or fourteen year old fittings on it. Put it all back together. This one didn't use an isolator for the gauge. Had a higher pressure gauge which to me, I'd rather have the lower pressure one because there's more resolution. But whatever, it's moot at this particular point, and I fired it up, and uh, everything seems to be working. The gauge no longer shakes. So I'm wondering if there was some sort of hydraulic uh, hydraulic effect happening in that manifold. I, I, I bet you something's probably was coming apart in there. I didn't take it apart yet. I want to take it apart because I want to before I throw it out because I want to see this if I could find this smoking gun and uh was causing it so but interestingly enough now according to this gauge the pump i i used to be able to close the valves and turn the rpm up and then it, it which and it would build 60 pounds of pressure but this one i can't do that so, so who knows who knows all right who knows and uh i think i told you they fixed the refrigerator and they claimed that it was a, the guy was very, very nice. I personally think that it was, the, uh, the, the evaporator was all iced up because I think my wife had too much stuff in the freezer. I may have told you last week, but uh, anyway, so that's fixed. But interestingly enough, that now as soon as, well, about two hours after the guy left, what I think, is, it sounds like the compressor is starting to make noise. It's doing everything right. It's cold. It's, it's two degrees, zero to two degrees in the freezer. It's 39, 40 degrees in the refrigerator. But the com- it sounds like the, comp- the compressor is always, we I mean, never heard that thing run. But I was thinking about it, and I'm going to use my mechanic stethoscope. I don't think it's the compressor. I think it's the fan. And I think there's a piece of ice left in there. And I think it's going, and the fan is running, hitting a piece of ice. So why am I going to use my mechanic's th- thermostat? My mechanic's stethoscope is because the compressor is down at the bottom and the fan is in the freezer. So if I could go in there with the stethoscope and hear the fan noise, then I guarantee you there must be a piece of ice that's still in there and rubbing on the fan blades. And God knows the fan blades are probably plastic, so they'll probably break. But I can't blame, I was mad at Whirlpool, and he did change the thermistor in the, in the uh, which is a, it's a thermistor, which is the opposite of a resistor. A resistor actually, when it gets heated, increases in, t- in resistance. The resistance goes up and a thermistor is the other way around. When it's heated, the resistance goes down. And they use thermistors in most engine management systems for coolant sensors and air charge temperature sensors, whether it's gasoline or diesel. So, if you were to unplug, let's say, a coolant sensor on a modern engine (modern in the last forty years), which is frightening, the ECU would consider it to be like minus forty below zero. So, it's uh, it's uh, a completely different than a resistor. Well, I shouldn't say it's completely different; it's the exact opposite. It's the mirror image. So, uh, they claim. So, not like I'm saying this. That sounds derogatory. The guy was a great mechanic. He was a car guy. He had a Challenger. He's a new Challenger he's putting a supercharger on it, got a cam and head package on it. But anyway, uh, the, the, when you check a thermistor, you need to have a chart because it has to be a certain resistance at a given temperature. So he he you know did all of that properly he took his infrared gun measured the temperature of the thermistor. I mean you know this is, this is not like you're doing machining with a micrometer so you mean the charts have a little bit of, of leeway in them so the, it was about 68 69 degrees and he looked on the chart and, and supposedly <clears throat> I think the resistance I don't remember what he had said it was it's supposed to be 2,300 ohms and it was 600 ohms, and it's supposed to have a two, two, up to a 2% variation. So he did change that, and like I said, started right up and worked fine. It took about 12 hours, 8 or 10 hours, for it to pull down to the proper temperature. And, um, it, and then about two hours after he left, it started to make noise. So that basically is that, but it's working fine, and I will determine whether I think it's a piece of ice in the plenum i'm calling it a plenum by where the uh evaporator is that's where i think i think there's a piece of ice left in there probably a piece fell down and it's rubbing on the fan because that's what it sounds like and the reason why i was able to determine that this morning when i got up at four i'm only telling it because it's, i don't know why i'm telling you it's four fifteen. i was in the kitchen and i heard it start the refrigerator start and uh for a nano i'll say a nanosecond a split second The way it's it's set up is that the compressor kicks on first, then the fan kicks on, so there's a slight delay. And I heard the compressor kick on, and that was very, very quiet. And, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning in the house out in the country, it's very quiet. And uh, and then you hear the fan come, and that's when the noise came on. That's why I think it's a piece of ice in there. So I was cursing Whirlpool for no reason. So Whirlpool, I take back my cursing of you. And the other thing, basically, is... uh, I have the Maverick, they brought the Maverick over, the hybrid Maverick, and then the end of this week I'm going to be getting the uh, the EcoBoost Maverick, so I have the, the, the Maverick is unbelievable, I mean it really is, I don't particularly care for the one that I have, I mean they give me, they give you all these loader ones, Lariat with a moonroof and leather upholstery and what have you, and I don't particularly care for the color scheme of the one that I have, so, uh, whatever, but that's, I'm not yet, you know, I'm, when you're road testing a vehicle, you're not road testing the color scheme. So, uh, but the, the truck really is, uh, I'm getting, and this, the day this podcast dropped, which is on a Wednesday, always, I will do, be doing my farm machinery digest highway route run with it, which is a hundred, it's about 137 miles, 135 miles or one way it's out i80 and then there's 10 miles on secondary roads and 10 or 12 miles and i turn around and i come back and i go back the same way so so basically it's about 15 miles of secondary roads each way between the farm to i80 and then um 130 125 120 125 miles of of interstate driving so that's my highway route. And I take all the test vehicles on this so that I have, you know, constant test data, not where I'm testing one, one way and the other way. And then also I have my local test route. So I will see how it performs on the highway route. But locally, the thing is getting 50 miles to the gallon. Five, zero miles to the gallon. So the first run I did, and I'll do six, I'll do seven of those. I'll have it for a week. Those local routes and uh I was the first tank I got 50 not the first tank the first run I got 52.1 then I got 48.9 and then the next one I got 50.7 so no matter how you slice it's 50 miles per 55 zero miles per gallon i'm driving the legal speed limit so i'm not you're going 25 miles an hour or something i'm also not going 80 miles an hour so the speed limit on i80 in new jersey is 65 if i'm on the secondary roads if it's 50 i'm going 50 if it's 45 i'm going 45 so I'm, i'm driving the legal limits and it's unbelievable on on fuel the only thing that i don't well so far i don't I'm going to do a full road test on my, on my radio show, but remember the radio show also lists as a podcast one week after it airs. <coughs> so, uh, excuse me. So it's, uh, something that you guys could get my, uh, I just, I don't know what that happened to me. My, uh, I think the, uh, pollen is getting to me cause I feel, I feel a little bit dizzy today. So I felt fine yesterday, but I feel like, like my head is spinning. So, uh, who knows? Maybe I'm getting old. But the Maverick, what I would like to have is the Maverick, and and according to Ford, I didn't test it yet. It's supposed to be able to haul fifteen hundred pounds. To tell you the truth, it's a much more practical vehicle than a four door F one hundred and fifty. So, don't tell Ford that. So, if you bought an F one hundred and fifty and you're not going to tow a trailer with it, you're not going to you know tow a real heavy trailer with it, or if and you're not going to you know. If, if you bought a four-door F-150, it only has a bed maybe six or eight inches bigger than this, so it's not that much bigger. The actual capacity and Ford claims that this could carry fifteen hundred pounds, so it's three quarters of a ton in the bed. And the EcoBoost one I think has a four thousand pound towing capacity, and I think the uh, the uh, hybrid has two thousand. But I'll do I'll get all those numbers exactly for my road test. And <coughs> excuse me and uh, my, my, my i'm sorry my i'm, I'm, I'm here I'm, I'm getting dizzy just doing this podcast but anyway so uh but it has as much room inside as passenger room as a as an f-150 give or take i mean if i'm sure the f-150 is a little bit bigger but no practical difference in the size so it's really a much better vehicle for you to use for the family and for the farm so, for the, But what I would particularly like is to have a Maverick with the same weight capacity but have a cab and a half instead of the four-door cab. In my particular instance, I don't need a four-door cab. I, it's only Charlotte, Charlotte and me and we, with nobody else. They, I would never use the back seat. So I'd rather have the vehicle about two, probably almost two feet shorter, have the same size bed at the same drivetrain and to have a... A front wheel drive pickup truck to me would be a wonderful vehicle because I could use it to replace my Ranger and my Fiesta. I mean, if that were to come up, you know, and have one vehicle, have the front wheel drive for the bad weather for when I travel, go all over the place, and then have the the 1,500-pound carrying capacity in the bed, and I don't need a full back seat. And the only reason why I would want some semblance with two little jump doors back there, because then you could put your grocery shopping, you could put stuff back there, you could put your luggage back there, what have you. So so that would be very, very practical, and it would be a shorter vehicle than it is right now. The Maverick is 200 inches long. I think it's 199.9 inches long. So it's, and I think my short bed ranger is a uh, 187 inches long. So my short bed single cab ranger. So that's basically uh, quite a bit of a difference when you pull it in the garage. So I will let you know about that, but very, very, I mean, the thing gets 50, 50 miles per gallon. So <clears throat> that is crazy. Now, the other thing is that I got, I have uh, well, two pins in my map. And the first person... I think I may have announced you prior to that, so you get announced again. I'm sorry about that. But Mr. Brian Sanson from Chit- Chit-nago, Chitnago, New York, he gave me a pin in my map. But this other gentleman, for sure I know I didn't announce because he just reached out to me last night, and it mis- is Mr. Kevin Judd from Elkhorn I'm going to say Montana Elkhorn Manitoba which is southwest Manitoba in Canada and he was kind enough to give me a pin in my map he said Elkhorn is a small little town that I wouldn't find and he was correct but I just put a pin with his name in it in southwest uh, I keep saying Montana Manitoba and uh Mr. Judd also just bought a used ranger so uh Maybe next on the next week's uh, idle chatter we'll discuss some ideas of what I think he should do with that. so he bought a ranger and I think I was partially instrumental in that based upon his letter and he he plants a lot of crops out there and he sent me his beautiful his beautiful grandchildren has a little baby and two older grandchildren and uh, he sent me some pictures of his uh of his cattle and he plants a lot of crops out there because he sent me another email excuse me send you another email about that and i also want to thank you mr judd for your kind words about hoping that my beloved cat donald comes home as of this recording he has not yet come home but we have faith in the lord that he will bring him home to us very very shortly so i want to thank you mr judd for that and I greatly appreciate you listening and he said sometimes you listen to the episodes twice well as an educator that that is music to my ears because um, that's really what it's all about. So thank you so much for the pin in the map. And these gentlemen will be in the drawing for the Hot Rod Farmer license plate. So that's uh, pretty good. And uh, let me see, we have two winners and I have to announce those. And one is Mr. Michael Cheshire, Cheshire from Colorado Springs. And then Mr. John Bosch from Tiverton, Ontario, Canada. So gentlemen, please reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and let me know where you want me to mail that hot rod farmer license plate to so that will be <clears throat> that'll be fantastic if you would be kind enough to do that for me all right so now on today's show what we're going to be talking about is EGR and a while back a long time ago i did a show on egr and uh and i think it needs to be revisited because there's a lot of egr problems out there and uh i'm just going to stop for a minute here and i'm going to put my top fueler on because i'm going to clear my clear my throat out okay hold on guys All right, thank you for that. Hopefully that wasn't too too long. But uh I don't know if that's annoying to you. If it is, I know Jason out in Long Island liked it, but I don't know if it's annoying to you. But I don't just don't want to have that dead air. And as I said, there is a pause button on here, but it doesn't work too good for you to pause. That's they call it like a cough button, and sometimes when you press it it resets the whole soundboard and then you have to paste the paste the actual episode back together, which is uh something that susan would have to do and it it, it just makes it complicated so i just ask for your forgiveness for uh having to uh to do that Alrighty. so we're going to talk about egr now the interesting thing about egr is that it first came about on gasoline engines and it stands for exhaust gas recirculation and the reason for egr is to lower an emission called the uh, called oxides of nitrogen which is abbreviated nox it's capital N, capital O, and it's subscript X. So it's, uh, it's not nitrous oxide, it's oxides of nitrogen. And that's an emission that is created through heat pressure and exposure time in the combustion chamber. And it's responsible for photochemical smog. And if you have a later diesel engine and you have a SCR system on it, selective catalytic reduction, and you're using uh, diesel exhaust fluid... DEF then that is to control oxides of nitrogen now what's happening is that the way they control the way they control oxides of nitrogen with EGR not with with SCR with EGR exhaust gas recirculation is they put into the combustion chamber an exhaust gas and exhaust gas is inert meaning it's not going to be able to burn and if it's not able to burn then it's going to lower the combustion temperature so it's actually used as a filler so it would be just like if you were to look at a crop protection product or we'll look at anything and they say well i have these other items in it water or this or that or what have you and it's used as a carrying agent so in this particular instance egr is used as a, as a filler and it takes the place of combustible mixture so if it takes the place of combustible mixture then the then the engine the combustion process is not going to produce as much heat and thus it is not going to produce oxides and nitrogen when the leading edge flame front temperature <clears throat> gets to about 2500 degrees and above that's when the oxides of nitrogen production really starts to ramp up now there's oxides of nitrogen produced below that but the amount of oxides of nitrogen is is minimal i'll say that compared to once it gets to be 2500 degrees or more so by putting jar in it's inert and it's not going to allow the, the temperature in the cylinder to get as high now, keep in mind that EGR is not administered all of the time, and the strategy for EGR is completely different for a gasoline engine, spark ignition, versus a diesel engine. That's because the combustion process is completely different, whereas the diesel is, is is, uh, is what do you call it? Uh, well, it's, it's comp- what do you call it? That's not too professional. I was just looking at my instrumentation here, where a diesel is... Um, going to heat the air to a point where the fuel auto ignites and the spark ignition engine, the arcing of the spark plug, is what is going to do. That. I'm just going to get a drink here. Excuse me for a second. So that is, <clears throat> that's a, ma- <clears throat> a major difference of how the combustion event takes place. Now, when you talk about EGR, there's what they call a dilution rate and back in the in the 1970s early 70s i think 1972 buick was the first one to use egr and this we're talking gas engines and then 1973 went basically across <laughs> across the board as far as that was concerned because the emission standards changed and back in the early days of egr what would happen is that They would not actually administer EGR to, let's say if it was an eight-cylinder engine to all eight cylinders, they would maybe do it to four cylinders, half the engine. You say, that's crazy. Well, all they were interested in doing was meeting the emission standards for that particular they just wanted to meet the standards they didn't care how they got there so if they could get the oxides of nitrogen down in four cylinders and half the engine and the tailpipe emissions were low enough to to there wasn't the epa then to satisfy the federal government that was good enough it was good to go there was no no problem with that whatsoever so they would just it would be like somebody's like uh somebody in school studying for a test and uh they just would uh, want to pass the test. that's all they wanted to do was pass the emissions test and they could care care less. And then as the emission standards got stricter, what would happen is that they would end up putting EGR into all the cylinders. And modern engines the past 40 years or so, if it has EGR, it's going to be, administered to all the cylinders it's not going to be something that's just going to be for a couple of half the motor half the engine so what the dilution rate is is the amount of egr based upon the airflow into the engine so now we measure volumetric efficiency which is The amount of cylinder fill the engine is experiencing, obviously you have to have airflow to have cylinder fill, but it gets a little bit tricky here because the dilution rate is not necessarily impacted with the, I shouldn't say impacted, doesn't represent the volumetric efficiency. They look at the air, so it'll be read as a percentage. So let's say if it's 30% dilution rate, so that means that 30% of the incoming flow into the cylinder will be, with EGR, if it's sixty percent, it'll be sixty percent, and and it's not going to happen. Like I said, at every driving scenario, historically on a spark ignition engine, it's going to be at part throttle, light load, and on a diesel engine, some actually give EGR at idle, and they map the they map the actual. Um, nox production of the engine and they determine due to flame speeds, load and what have you where they need to put egr and with advanced engine controls what they basically do is that they'll put egr in just when they need it and they'll get the level as as low as has to be to pass the test the emissions test now it was now it was the EP. i don't even know what that was. i think that was the kittens doing something uh, so anyway what will happen is that the on a modern engine that's what we're going to talk about I'm not going to talk about 1973 whether it's gasoline or diesel the amount of the the engine's calibration on a gasoline engine the fuel delivery obviously in a spark advance and on a diesel engine the fuel delivery and the timing of the fuel delivery is predicated upon knowing how much EGR is going to be administered and if the and and for the desired results so the spark table on a gas engine and the fuel table and the timing table what i mean timing on diesels when the inject when the injector pulse is going to be because this is common rail is going to be administered and the amount of fuel is all altered and becomes a component of how much egr dilution is going to be so what does this mean to you guys as hot rod farmers on the farm shop and what have you. And what that means to you is that uh, if the EGR system is not working properly, then you will usually have the end result of an engine that runs poorly. Now, why will the engine be running poorly is because the fuel delivery, the timing, spark timing, and injection timing in a diesel are going to be calculating for egr and if the egr system is not going to be administering the proper amount of egr then all of those calculations are a hundred percent wrong and the end result will historically be an engine that does not run properly and it may run rough it may it could do a whole bunch of things i don't want to put something in your mind And it may also set some sort of service engine soon light and some sort of trouble code because a modern engine will actually look at the flow rate of the EGR. So I don't want to make you a calibration engineer. I don't want to make you anything like this. But what I want you to do is recognize that if you have a, a, a dysfunctional or partially functional EGR system, and this could be on a farm tractor. This could be on a on a pickup truck. It could be on a on a car, a sedan, an SUV. It could be on your sprayer, what have you. If it has EGR, is that the engine management management calibration? So the tune-up, what we would say is drag races, the tune-up in it. The adjustments are all, all uh, based upon having that EGR flowing. And if that EGR if the EGR flow is there, then the calibration is correct. Once you go and you remove that EGR flow or mim- or minimize that flow or, or ex- you usually can't over create it create too much flow. You could always usually historically go the other way. And if you do that, then all bets are off on how the engine is going to run. And in most instances, <clears throat> what is happening is that the EGR, Flow rate diminishes over time. And why is it diminish over time? I'm just going to stop for a second. I got to clear my throat again. Hold on. I'm really sorry about that, but uh, I. Uh, uh, I'm telling you, I'm clearing my throat, but that's really, I'm I'm telling you a white lie. I just got so dizzy that I uh, could hardly sit up in this chair. So, I mean, I don't mean to burden you with that, but uh, so this may be a a little bit of a shorter show than normal. So in essence, what's happening is that the EGR valve, excuse me, and its passengers, passengers could become carboned up excuse me and if they become carboned up because remember we're putting exhaust gas in there which is going to have which is going to be going to have carbon in it and also a lot of diesel engines and some gasoline engines have what they call cool dgr and the cool dgr means that they have a cooling system like a little radiator that runs engine cool it's not the same usually it's not the same coolant it's the same chemical formulation but it's not the same coolant that goes into the um it's not this into the radiator so it's 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 a divorced system i don't know what these kittens are doing but it's a divorced system and they're cooling the egr because if they could lower the temperature of the exhaust gas then they could actually put less egr into the cylinder and keep that oxides of nitrogen emissions down so what happens is that the uh egr passengers have a tendency to carbon up and specifically if the engine sees a lot of idling and a lot of round town around town trips and if you had another thing that causes it to carbon up is the person using the wrong oil formulation for the engine are uh, not additizing their fuel and then possibly and then possibly also a cheap oil whereas it doesn't have the full additive package that it has it and once these once these areas carbon up then your egr flow rate is going to drop down dramatically and if it drops down dramatically that the system is still going to be making the changes in the calibration to make up for that egr but that egr is not there so that becomes a problem and so what i want you to do is become very 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 aware of the fact that over time the EGR system, even if you do everything correctly, is going to build carbon and it's going to need to be taken apart and the valve is going to make sure you need to check the valve and make sure that the, that, the, that it's opening and it's closing properly. But more importantly and usually more likely is that the passages that feed it are, being, are, are, are staying clean. And depending upon the application and the design, you may have to end up taking the manifold off each one is application specific. But those if those passengers become even partially so it's like a person with, with clogged arteries, even partially clogged, that you're going to have a lot of issues and problems. And with a lot of with a lot of people buying because of this the situation today with new tractors, new farm equipment not available, that they're buying used equipment, used trucks, and a lot of guys are buying used semis. And they're using EGR and they use some wise to whole grain and they're using EGR and they are uh, you could have some problems because they're because over time the person didn't take care of it properly or service it. So I just want you to know that you have to service that EGR system. It's not it's not carefree. The other thing that comes into play is you have to make sure that the valve some valves are electronic some work off a vacuum that you have to make sure that that valve works that the pintle lifts and the pintle seals because if none of that is happening properly that you are going to have a a, a poorly running engine or an engine that sets codes and has issues and it is because a lack of flow on in the egr system so um so keep that in mind, and and usually it is just carbon. And lots of times that carbon is very, very hard to get out because it gets gets baked baked in there. You ready? So uh, listen, I, I have to apologize, but I don't think I can make it through the rest of this show that's probably very unprofessional. But I want to thank you so much for tuning, for clicking in. And I want you to know what the hot rod farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher and my beloved, beloved America. You have a blessed day and I apologize for not giving your full show today. Bye-bye.